the Culture Crunch, brought to you by Hunters and Unicorns. Today, we're fortunate enough to be joined by Nicole Stark, an organizational regenerator and intelligence officer within the tech space. Nicole, great to have you. Thanks, Karen. It's good to be here. I appreciate it. Can you please tell us a little bit more about exactly what your job entails? Yeah, I build new um, operational frameworks and I develop individual and collective decision intelligence so that businesses can be smarter, more resilient, and particularly future adaptive. So I really am focusing on innovating organizational and operational systems to be more adaptive and integrative into human systems. And then I have, you know, three philosophical foundations that are the core of my work, which we might be discussing later. Fantastic. That's uh, an incredibly innovative um, and insightful job role. I'm really looking forward to understanding exactly what those three pillars are during our conversation. I guess the, the, first, conversa- uh, the first question that I wanted to ask you, Nicole, um, and it's the first question that we always ask on, uh, on this podcast is, what does good company culture look like to you? In a way, it's a big question. And then in another way, it's a really simple question. And I think for me is just to not be hypocritical. I think that the biggest problem that companies has is when their brands do not actually match who they are. Because brands tend to be descriptions of values and principles and all these things. And yet who they are uh, as humans inside a company are not that. And so for me, company culture is simply when we match who we say we are. And I think that that requires a certain human centeredness that is above the product or service that we are providing. In other words, who we are as a company and business is equally or more important than what we produce. No, it may, it makes perfect sense, but it's, it's definitely a, a kind of fresh perspective because I guess businesses use a lot of words like authenticity, don't they? That's, that's one of the buzzwords. And I relate to that. And I think there's definitely space for that within every industry. But I think the way that you phrased it, which is actually just don't be hypocritical, don't use buzzwords that you're not deeply aligned to, I think has a lot more gravitas than simply saying, be authentic. Well, it doesn't much matter. I mean, humans are... It feels I'm frustrated when, when, when there's all this focus and consideration on culture and then it tends to be programmatic and it tends to be you know, using our marketing teams to give us the language and develop the principles and put them up on the wall. But then leadership particularly, you know, since they're the ones who have the most power, are not actually matching those things. And that's always the problem in any collection of, of human people. You have the problem of what you say doesn't match who you are. And then no one knows how to solve for that. And just following on from that, what would you say is one of the biggest obstacles or challenges that we within the tech space face in relation to achieving company culture? Well, I think the tech space in particular is more hypocritical than most. And the reason why is that tech space considers themselves the most innovative industry that we have. I mean, tech and science, right? We're really committed to being innovative, ahead of the curve, um, exploring and pushing the boundaries and taking risks. However, we're only doing that externally. We're not doing that internally as individuals. And really, in order to, to truly be innovative people, it's more than just what we're producing. It's who we are. 
And so what risks are we willing to individually take and the work that, what are we really willing to do personally in order to become the values that we say that we are? And because no industry is really doing this, um, I think human nature as well, it's, this is normal. This is the norm. This is accepted and we're just following suit. But I think it's very interesting that the tech space being truly innovative, it, it's, there tends to be a bigger gap because we're, we're committed to the certain principles of innovation, but that's only in what we produce, not in who we are. And so this mismatch, I think, is more distinct in the tech space. And I think that it's potentially more of a problem because the human nature is not evolving as quickly as the technology that we're making. And that gap is, is more and more of a problem. The, the gap that you're talking about within the tech space about the time and investment we're putting into products is not being matched with our investment in our people is, is such an interesting concept and definitely something that I'd, I'd really like to explore with with you. Um, however, before we get onto that, I, I'd like to just bring it back to the workplace environment as it stands right now. What do you think one of the biggest challenges is at the moment within the tech space in, in terms of that kind of tangible going into work? Well, it's hard for me, Karen, to start on something specific when I think that they're all symptoms of a bigger root cause. So th th this is why I kind of developed my three, you know, kind of foundations, which are the core of my work, because they're philosophical foundations of what I think are the core root problems of all of the symptoms. So and I think most people are addressing the symptoms which, as we know, even in our body systems is not very useful except for the short term. You know, if we look at symptoms and we're trying to solve the symptoms that we're not getting to the root causes, they never go away. We're just shuffling the symptoms around. We're solving this symptom, but then because it's not actually addressing the root cause, it's creating another one. And I think this is what's happening in every company uh, because this is what happens in human systems and this is what humans do. <laughs> it's much more difficult to actually notice root causes, never mind solve them. I feel like we're on the cusp of hearing really insightful, profound things. I think we should just go straight into it, Nicole. I'm really keen, and I'm sure our viewers are as well, in, in hearing exactly what these three philosophical pillars are that, that you know, your work, what that entails. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll name the three out, and then we can start with one, because they're, you know, they all have um, particular complexity and depth. But the one that we've been mainly talking about is kind of my first one, which is ontology over product, which means who we are. And as individuals and collectively should be equally or more important than what we produce, either in our product or service. And we can come back to that. I'll just list that out there for now. The second one is wonder over information, which is really the art of processing. I'll come back to that. And then the third one is relational resiliency and, um, and our personal and collective tolerance for that which we don't like, our anxieties, our uncertainty, what we can't understand. So those are the three pillars, ontology over product, wonder over information, and then relational resiliency. And this one that we kind of landed on first happens to be the first one, which I, which I think is about who, who we are um, in comparison and in relationship to what we make. So let's, let's expand on that. So, I mean, and, and it's also important, I think, to, to look at it through the lens of the tech space as well. But 
what exactly does that entail, you know, ontology over product? Well, in terms of, yeah, let's look at the tech space. I mean, you know, the tech world is responsible for some of the world's most critical advancements. I'll, I'll start here because I think it's tech and science. I think right now we are in the fourth industrial revolution. And again, this is a high level so we can get to something more specific. But on a high level, never before in history, I call it the existential age. You know, the fourth industrial revolution is something that was coined, you know, more academically, but never before have we lived in an age where all of our sciences and our developments could actually kill us. And then never mind global warming and a pandemic. Right. So we live in a particularly interesting time where we could (laughs) die very quickly, kill ourselves, you know, much, much easier and much faster than ever before. So we have this, this intensity around the times that we live in that is um, that kind of is simultaneously both advancing humanity and destroying humanity. And this is because of science and technology, right? It's our science and our technology that has advanced to, to these areas, which are, I think, both excellent and destructive. And I think what's difficult to understand or to wrap our minds around is that we in conversations, we tend to pick one or the other. We tend to like overly idealize, you know, technology and science, or we overly catastrophize it. And the truth is that humans, we're doing both at the same time. Anything powerful can be powerfully good or powerfully bad. <laughs> and so it depends on how we use it. It depends on what we do with it. So we're, so two things exist simultaneously, which is the good and the bad. And they're more extreme than ever. The good is more extreme and the bad is also more extreme. And so how do we operate inside this reality? And part of the reality of this is that we're having increased anxiety. The the ability for us to become uh, humans that can navigate and adapt to these circumstances in our technology and our science is, is slower than the actual technology that's being built. So there's this. And then there's also how disparate that is, that all of the resources that are required for us to develop these kind of crazy technologies steals a lot of energy in terms of personal energy that are also necessary to be good, well-developed humans. (laughs) So in terms of running a business, if you're an entrepreneur and especially in the tech space, you're using so much of your mental, emotional, and physical energy to actually build these innovative products, which require more energy and work than something that isn't innovative because it requires a different kind of risk. It requires different kinds of resources. It requires a whole different kind of thinking. So all of this is big. And yet at the same time, that's diminishing energy towards something else, like who we become and how we are in our relationships and how we relate to other humans. So this is a complex problem. And I think that is that, that sits most interestingly and intensely inside the tech space because we're doing more extreme work in the world in, in, in this way. Oh, you're saying that... The time and investment that we in the tech space are putting towards products is actually at the expense of our investment in our people. Our humanity. (laughs) I would say this, that it's the time and energy and resources, the expectations, all of the things that are required to actually create innovation are definitely at the expense of our humanity. And that is, I think, the root problem. So the question is, how can we become more expansive to be able to do both? Which is, I think, what the future demands of us. Like, I don't think that it's going to end well, you know, if we continue to advance our technology and our products, and then we continue to atrophy at the same time or not evolve 
who we are in, in relationship to each other, in relationship to our human selves and, and, and those for which the product serves. Product serves humanity. It doesn't serve anything, you know, more pre- predominantly. So that, that creates a bigger problem as time goes on. Absolutely. And it's counterintuitive to what we're, you know, as you said, as someone, you know, you're someone who's very passionate about tech and, and has operated within this space for numerous years and, and, and really taking the time to understand all elements of it. It's actually going against the grain here in what we're trying to achieve. Are we talking enough about this? Are we talking enough about the gap between people and technology? And, you know, because I've, I've not had many conversations of, of this nature and I wish, I wish I had. And that's partly my fault for not inviting this debate. But I'm, I'm confident that I'm not, I'm, I'm not in the minority here. Like I think there are many other individuals who work within the tech space, but they're not really immersing themselves in the different elements. Would you say that that was accurate? The, the deep reality is it's complex and people sense this. So when I speak to people, I've never had anyone, you know, not find what I'm saying is compelling, but then it's overwhelming. Cause it's like, Oh, where does it start? And then that overwhelm is also confronting like this reality. And most of reality, like when you actually really examine it, it's confronting. It requires something of us. And particularly if we're leaders, right? If we're leaders and we're sensing something and we're hearing something um, and we become more acutely aware, it demands something of us. And I think that it should. However, most don't want to do that work because they're already, they're already overwhelmed. And so I'm sensitive to this. Like I understand, like I've been an entrepreneur. I've helped companies grow. I've had my own. It's an, it's an enormous amount of work. It's a huge burden. Um, and we're going, in my opinion, we're going to have to learn how to do both. We're going to have to learn how to develop and invest and have all of the resources to build a company and also become humans that are actually doing the personal work. Yeah, absolutely. We, we don't know what we don't know. So we, we, we know that we, have, we need to have data and we need to have metrics. So, so we spend a lot of time, especially within the tech space, at, at obtaining and assessing data. And of course, as, as you said, Nicole, they're incredibly important. And, and we're not sitting here saying we don't need data. But my understanding from what you're saying is that there is also space for the non-metrics, the things that you can't plug into an Excel spreadsheet, that human-to-human connection. Um, and actually, until we can appreciate and acknowledge that we need to look at things more holistically, how are we going to continue our cultural innovation if at the moment all we're looking at is what we know and, and what we measure and, and the data that we've, we've referred to and fallen back on for many, many years? So this is a really, it's not the data and information isn't important. It's, it's, it's the kind of data and information and then it's how it's integrated and that it's not compartmentalized like we do. And, and a lot of the data information, which I kind of, that end up being overall intelligence is, can't really be captured on a spreadsheet, but it doesn't mean that it's not data and information and it doesn't mean that it's not being measured. It certainly is just not in, not in more classic ways. And so this kind of art of processing, as I call it, which is really wonder over information, which means we have to engage our curiosity and we have to engage a certain kind of attitude of humility. And we have to engage a more complex reality where instead of looking for the tips and tricks and the easy things, and we compartmentalize for good reason, because the world is a very complex place and we can't understand it without compartmentalizing. So compartmentalization works really well for a short term, for a moment. 
but then it can't stay there. Otherwise, it's not very effective and it doesn't exist in any real reality outside of that very compartmentalized, you know, micro moment. (laughs) So that's what I'm kind of inviting people to is that processing is a skill. I mean, that's why I call it the art of processing. It's how we gather information, how we gather data, how we connect the pieces, how we develop insight and foresight. It's a skill. And I think that everyone can learn it. And then ultimately, if you are better at actually processing information and you're a better processor in general of your own emotion, let's say. So information isn't just about, you know, externals and what we can collect from our business structures. It's also from from individuals and our relationships. So if we can put all of that together, we become far more expansive and, and actually increase our intelligence massively. Because now we're integrated into all of the systems that are occurring at the same time, and we're creating strategies that address them all rather than just one, um, where it breaks eventually. So this becomes a complex thing, which I think we can learn. And I think that it absolutely develops all kinds of advantages that, that again, are less measurable to some degree, but very measurable to other degrees. And this is the exciting part of my work, is that the, the, the results are actually huge but they're unexpected because they don't show up in, in ways that we're used to. So that's kind of the wonder over information, which is really about curiosity, humility, which enables us to actually enter into processing more intelligently to find new things. And if we translate that to the culture piece, especially within the tech space, earlier on, Nicole, you talked about how the art of processing is, is not just data and statistics, but also processing the human condition and the people that we work with, and you know, the, the people factor. So my understanding is that by improving the art of processing from a people standpoint, that would also have an, a positive impact on company culture, for example, because we're looking at individuals and taking steps to understand them as opposed to just collecting data, sticking a statistic on it and moving on. Right. I mean, this is the kind of, this is where, you know, decision intelligence is huge and um, and how we can create more integrative, complex strategies. It has everything to do with what is the quality of information that we're gathering. So that's the first thing is you have to have the quality of the information and then you have to know how to apply it, you know, more intelligently, which, which requires insights, foresights and making connections that most people aren't making. And there's no one person in companies that are that are doing this in a, in a holistic way across all organizations and from bottom to top, top to bottom. It's incredibly mm-hmm. complex and yeah. incredibly powerful. This is definitely a huge piece of, you know, how we can uh, adapt into the future that most of us and particularly leaders are incredibly competent in how we are creating strategies within our area of expertise, mm-hmm. but that's very limited. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the problem. It's not integrated into everything else. Um, and so who is doing that? Who is able to, to do that? And we can, we can, we can start by, with curiosity. And so that's kind of the pre- prescriptive element. And I said in the beginning that I'm really against, you know, I think prescriptive leadership is of the past. And I think that's way too easy and um, gets us way off the hook. But mm. there, there are useful points of prescription, which is like where to start. So there are certain places that I am committed to that I know are great places to start. And one is learning how to ask better questions Mm -hmm. and really engaging your curiosity. And because the curiosity will lead you to different places of connections that you wouldn't have gotten to otherwise. 
And so it's so first place in terms of wonder over information and the art of processing is, is really being able to ask better questions in order to connect the dots mm. or to locate what's missing or to think through. And that, that requires energy. It requires mental and emotional and sometimes physical energy. So this is a resource that we can build in ourselves that I don't see any company really having any of the tools to invest in individuals and helping them learn how to become more resourceful individuals because it's not particularly what they're being paid to do. And yet yeah. the capacity and potential for humans are far beyond our job description. So if we're not investing in the individuals, then we're not investing in our assets. And we all say that the biggest asset in our company, we all say are, are people, but we don't at all treat them that way. And we don't invest in them that way at all. No. I mean, essentially, we have built a construct, a societal construct, whereby you are rewarding conformity. And therefore, any sense of disruption is going to be deemed negative because it's shaking things up and it's actually a way of saying this isn't the best way to be doing things. And I suppose no business, whether it's within the tech space or not, wants to have that conversation. I guess it's not in their interests because their interests are very predefined already. As you said, the CEO reports to the board. You know, there is always someone who you've got to answer to and explain yourself to against a set of metrics that are very, very set in stone. And until we have that conversation whereby we challenge the norm and we challenge the status quo, are we ever going to move forward? Is our cultural involvement, as you mentioned earlier, is our cultural involvement ever going to have any parity with our technological advancement? And my understanding, you know, having this conversation is so thought-provoking because essentially it's, it's, it's getting harder each day because the technology is advancing at such an exponential rate yet our people conversations are still dwindling behind. And every day that goes on and every year that goes on, that, that gap is just widening. That gulf is getting huge, which is so ironic given the space that we're all working in, which is about advancement and improvement. Where leadership throws this problem to is the worst place to throw it to, and it's HR. And HR is, I believe, and there might be plenty of people who are going to get angry at me about this, but um, it's not—it's nothing—it's nothing personal. It's systematic, right? That, that human resources as an organization is probably the most fucked up, backward, bad organization that exists that needs to be fundamentally transformed. And a lot of amazing, good people are in HR, but they—the um, system itself is a conflict of interest. And um, it was designed fundamentally to protect the company. There's no one I have ever met in, in any industry any, that even remotely trusts HR. And because of that, they're actually not given as much of a seat at the table, which really hurts them. But this is one very specific localized place that's problematic. And I believe in terms of real innovation is that HR should not be involved in people anything. Um, they should be an administrative, legal organization entirely. And there should be a totally separate organization, which I have called the intelligence department, <laughs> the intelligence organization where you have a chief intelligence officer. And this, this organization is, is completely committed to the human systems 
and how they adapt and are integrated into all of the organizational operational systems and entirely separate from HR. Yeah. So you're saying that for HR to be transformed in order, because, you know, like you, I know many talented, incredibly hardworking individuals who work within HR and they've moved into that space because they want to improve, improve the business from a people perspective. Right. I, I think every single HR person I know has done, gone in there with really, really good intentions. But a lot of the time there's a bureaucratic element to it, whereby they want to say something or they yeah, and there's so many para- not 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 always not not in all organisations, but in I guess cor- you know the corporate world certainly they are held to strict company guidelines and parameters. So as you said, actually yes, of course they're they're compromised because they have a kind of a loyalty to the company because that they're the ones setting the rules. And so your your idea of having a a kind of compliance department, as you mentioned, which for HR, which focuses on the legalities and the conduct element of things, separate to a, a you know a people intelligence department, I think is actually incredibly groundbreaking. Which it does. I think it really needs to be re and talk about regeneration. Like HR is a real huge point, is an excellent place to start if we created a whole new org that was separate from HR, I really think that this is a huge groundbreaking place that, that enables a lot of my work and a lot of humans to, to actually develop in their, in their career. I, yeah. And if we move to the third philosophical component uh, behind, you know, behind your purpose and, and, and what you do, Nicola, we're, we're talking about rational resilience. Can, can you talk us through that a little bit, please? Well, here's the thing. When I say relational resilience, it fundamentally kind of lies in our increasing our capacity individually and collectively to tolerate that which we do not like, that which we do not know, you know, or that which we do not understand. And this really comes down to anxiety, I found, that when you're in business and particularly in tech and particularly in like startups or entrepreneurs, you know, there's an enormous amount of anxiety. And what we do as humans is we tend to solve our symptoms of anxiety before anything else, because we don't like that feeling that we're having. So we want to get rid of that feeling as quickly as possible. And it ends up not at all solving the root problems, either operationally or, or in any kind of human system. It solves the individual's anxiety, which can be the worst decision <laughs> for, for the actual team or for the company. So what I'm looking at is how do we actually build our tolerance for our own anxiety? And how can our anxiety teach us new things? How can it actually help us uncover really important information about ourselves, about the circumstance, about, you know, the root problem? And that it can help us to identify certain kind of different data and different information that then we can use. But before we get there, we have to be able to tolerate it more. It's just in life and in work and everywhere. That humans, we, since we can't hold our anxiety very long, we end up having making all these decisions that make us feel better faster. And yet that causes more problems. So we have to learn kind of how to hold that, hold it a little bit longer and evaluate it, what's happening. And then, and then I kind of provide that tool. Like I'm, you know, enter in kind of at this point as a, as a, as a sort of coach, <laughs> how to actually process this anxiety, what are the root causes of it? And can we get to a better strategy in order to solve the root cause rather than the surface 
of what we're trying to kind of eliminate the bad feeling too quickly. When you say the word anxiety, right, it's an, I would say it's quite an emotionally charged one in the sense that people hear it and kind of feel anxious, you know, just by hearing that word, because it, it has that impact. It has that impact where if someone said, I'm feeling anxious, it has very negative connotations. It's, it's seen as a negative impact. So my understanding from what you said is actually not that it's a positive, but that actually that space that you operate in where you feel anxious is kind of a necessary, uncomfortable period, an uncomfortable space in order for us to push forward. Is that is that right? In my evaluation and observation, the majority of, of our anxiety is that we don't like uncertainty and our need for stability and security. So if we can rationalize this out a little bit more where, you know, the truth is like, <laughs> you know, how much security is there really, particularly in, you know, this existential age, which is why our anxiety is increasing, right? And how much certainty is there really, right? Like, and so when I can sit with people and we can look at this, like, okay, what, what is, what's, do you know what's causing you anxiety? A lot of humans don't know. They can't locate actually the source of what's causing them to be uncomfortable or deeply stressed out. And yet that anxiety and stress affects their decisions and their relationships very powerfully. So if that is one of the most powerful effects that we can have in what we do and how we relate, then that's a place that we need to look at and we need support. And I think that, and we need resources in terms of what are our resources to understand our anxiety and uh, to work with it in a way that becomes an asset. Uh, and it can, I think we just need help doing that. We, it's a skill that we have to learn. So the goal is still obviously to alleviate anxiety, but what you're saying is before we look for the quick, short term, how can I solutionize? You're saying the goal is, is still to alleviate anxiety, but before we alleviate it, let's take a moment to understand it. Yes. And that's part of what makes us better problem solvers. And this is something that we skip. You know, of course, it's what humans do. We want something fast and quick. We want short, quick answers. We don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to deal with any more bullshit or discomfort than we have to. And however, and this is uh, pretty much essential to growth. Like most all humans can't grow without resistance, without discomfort. And we can, you know, I use the analogy all the time, just in the gym. Like if you want to become a strong body, you have to get into the gym. I don't know about you, but most of us, you know, gym time isn't fun. And, and it, when it does become fun, and I do know a lot of people who do actually have a lot of fun, it's usually not fun until you have enough strength to where it's, you're experiencing your strength in your working out and that becomes fun because you can actually experience your strength. But when you don't have strength, I don't know anybody who thinks gym is fun or exercise, right? You know, um, when it comes to like, you know, I'm using, I mean, all metaphors break and fail. Um, and I'm a dancer and dancer's always fun. Um, and I'm building my, my, my muscles, but I'm talking about like specifically when you, you know, thinking to go lift weights, you know, there, the, <laughs> there's a principle here that requires resistance, that requires us to be uncomfortable, that requires a certain kind of discipline. And what I'm suggesting is, is that we are forcing, you know, all these humans to be external discipline in order to produce particular things externally, to perform externally. And yet the most powerful place to start is to actually develop our internal capacity 
which naturally increases our external capacity because that's from from where we do everything. So if we can look at, you know, what are the internal exercises and how can we use that information um, in terms of the experience of our whatever emotions they, they are to, to, to give us better insights, to give us better information and data, and then ultimately become better decision makers and better strategists because we're, we're understanding what the root causes of the problems really are. And we're able to identify them in ourselves, both. So in other words, we're examining what are the internal root problems and what are the external root problems simultaneously. And that's what makes us more intelligent decision makers is we're not compartmentalizing it to this one particular thing when the reality is everything is integrated. There's no real separation. Who I am inside a job is absolutely going to affect my work and particularly in the people that I work with. There's no way around that. So how can we actually function as more integrative creatures that actually matches reality rather than entering into this social delusion that we are separate from our work? And I think lockdown and COVID and, and the landscape of the last two years has certainly influenced that, where there, that boundary between personal and professional you know, is not just blurred, but in many cases is almost disintegrated. You know, we're working from home or we're, uh, you know, at home when we work, whichever way you look at it. Um, and also, I feel like this, even this conversation, I've, we've kind of come back full circle because the points that you raised in, in regards to relational resilience and the human, you know, our need to solutionize workplace anxiety before we've had a chance to really fully understand it, actually ties in with what you said at the beginning of this, which was we're working in a technological space where we're here to solutionize and make things efficient, but it's actually at the cost of humanity to an extent, to the human connection, which is exactly what we discussed at the beginning. I could talk to you all day, Nicole, honestly. (laughs) It's, It's always so interesting to speak with you. I mean, just... Everything, everything from the three philosophical elements uh, and pillars that we talked about from, you know, the uh, first being ontology over products and having more dialogue about how we can culturally evolve, ranging to the wonder over information. We talked about, well, you talked about essentially a complete innovative overhaul of our HR department into uh, people intelligence and sort of compliance. And then, of course, finally, the relational resilience um, in terms of understanding our anxiety before we solutionize is just so so thought-provoking, Nicole. Honestly, it's going to leave me kind of thinking about many things for a long, long time, which, which is what makes you so unique. And every time we speak, it's always just so refreshing and so innovative. I, I just want to say thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. I'm so grateful for you to have joined us. And I sincerely hope you will join us for our next season as for well. For sure. And I appreciate you, Karen. You know, it's your interest. You know, a lot of people, it just becomes too overwhelming and they're not, they're less interested to actually dig deep and to explore. And exploration requires emotional and mental work and, um, and to actually think through some of these things that are new. So I appreciate you and your work in the world. Thank you for that. And, um, and I hope to see you soon. 